Well, my name is Wade Davis. I'm a writer and an anthropologist, professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia. And in my more perfect world, we would realize that we're all interconnected, that race is an utter fiction, a cultural construct, that we're all cut from the same genetic cloth. We all share the same mystic endowment. Uh, we are all children of Africa, descendants of the first people who walked out of the ancient continent and 65,000 years ago, and then embarked on this incredible diaspora, Azura, 2,500 human generations in duration, a mere 40,000 years that carried us to every corner of the habitable world. But we'd also recognize that since we're cut from the same genetic cloth, it means that every human population, every society shares the same genius, the same mental acuity, the same human potential. And critically, whether that genius is invested in technological wizardry, as has been the great achievement of the West, or placed into the complex task of unraveling the mystic threads of memory inherent in a myth, is simply a matter of choice and cultural orientation. There is no hierarchy in the range of cultures. The idea that we went from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized of the Strand of London has been completely ridiculed by modern science as an artifact of the 19th century, as distant from our lives and as irrelevant to our lives as the fall of, Ro of Troy or the Battle of Rome. The lesson of anthropology is that every culture has something to say. Each deserves to be heard, just as none has monopoly on the route to divine. The other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being modern. They're not failed attempts at being us. Every culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And when the peoples of the world answer that question, they do so in the 7,000 voices of humanity. And those answers collectively become our human repertoire for dealing with the challenges that will confront us as a species in the coming centuries. Every culture has something to say, each deserves to be heard, just as none has a monopoly on the route to the divine. The purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences. That's what Ruth Benedict taught us so many years ago. I'm Mark Lernyoung, and welcome to Scanna, a podcast about orcas, oceans, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. And for the next few episodes, a podcast about the single biggest threat to orcas, oceans, the environment, and facts, America's Mad King, Donald Trump. Now, I've wanted to interview Wade Davis forever. He's been called the real-life Indiana Jones. His book was the basis for the zombie movie The Serpent and the Rainbow, and his work showing that zombies were real arguably did more to launch the zombie craze than George Romero. So I've wanted to talk to National Geographic's BC-based explorer and residents about his specialty, ethnobotany, his fight to protect languages and cultures around the world, his writing about rivers and natures, and we do not go near any of that in this interview that you're about to hear. In August, Wade Davis published a piece about the end of the American empire for Rolling Stone, and the story went crazy viral. It became essential reading for anyone fighting for or praying for the end of Trumplandia. So that's what we're talking about today and next week in the special two-part episode about Wade's warning to Americans and the world. 
If you're an American, please check out our show notes for information on how to vote. And for all our sakes, please vote for Biden. Sure, the Greens are adorable. Kanye is hilarious. If you really like either of them, send the Greens money, buy a Kanye album. But for the sake of our planet, vote for Biden and Harris. For the rest of you, you should check out our show notes too. There's all sorts of great information, quotes, all the good things. As always, Scan is brought to you by our pod at patreon.com. So if you like what we're doing, please join our pod and sponsor us at patreon.com. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, the publishers of my three new books about whales for younger readers. Orcas of the Sailor Sea, Big Whale's Small World, that's for babies, and Orcas Everywhere, which just won the City of Victoria's Children's Book Prize. You can find out more about all the books, ebooks, and audio versions at orcaseverywhere.com. The audio version of Orcas Everywhere, coming soon to your favorite audio platform. And all of these books are for sale wherever you buy your books. And now, here's Wade Davis talking COVID, crumbling empires, and America's last chance. Since we're doing an interview in the time of COVID, let's start with how are you, where are you? Oh, I'm happily on my um, piece of land on Bowen Island, just off the shores of Vancouver. Um, you know, it's interesting, Mark, I, I uh, on March 2nd, when I came back from Columbia, I was on my way to Jordan, facing two or three months of um, travel in seven countries, 30 or more lectures to deliver, um, a book to launch in New York and London and Toronto. And of course, like everybody else's schedule, it went to the car wash. And the interesting thing for me is looking back at that peripatetic life that I had, not just in terms of international travel, but in the six years that I have worked at UBC as a professor teaching in the fall, there has not been one Thursday in six years that I haven't flown somewhere. And now I look back on that kind of lifestyle of travel, almost like a grotesque and violent hallucination. I've been very happy to stay put. Wow. See, that's fascinating to hear because to me, you have what I think sounds like the coolest job on the planet, National Geographic Explorer in Residence. And I, I mean, I, whenever I think I hear about your adventures, you're always somewhere new and fascinating. And that's just for your work, never mind for yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, I've been very fortunate in that regard, Mark, but you know, I'm 66 years old and I've been doing that since I was 14. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I'm not, I don't travel for the sake of travel. Uh, um, I don't feel an urge to be on the road. Uh, I travel always in pursuit of stories. I'm a storyteller. And for me, um, research in the field has always been wondrous, but so too has been research in my library in the archives you know doing archival research is sort of like doing archaeological field work in a file cabinet but it, it unveils wonders and um, i've been able to do a great deal of writing in the, in this in this quiet time uh, and reflecting upon what covid means to us um, in in a in a cultural sense i mean this this piece that um, brought us together that appeared in rolling stone it's kind of an interesting interesting story because in a way the story has become a story you know I had been asked to speak about or write about COVID by any number of publications since the beginning of the pandemic and I kind of resisted because I didn't really feel I had anything novel to say and then one day I was 
out kayaking here on Bowen Island and I came ashore to a friend's place, uh, Trish Beatty, who's a brilliant physician. And I, I yelled to her from the shore, basically, you know, you know, Trish, COVID is not a story of medicine. It's not a story of morbidity and mortality. It's a story of culture. And this brilliant woman kind of lit up like a light bulb and said, that's what I've been trying to tell my colleagues. And that night I went back and wrote this piece I submitted um, on spec to an old friend of mine, Jan Wenner, who founded Rolling Stone. And Jan turned it on to his son, Gus, who runs Rolling Stone today. And before you knew it, it was it, with some good editing, it was in, in on the website. And it simply went viral. Uh, for five weeks, it trended number one or number two on the site, unheard of for a piece of long form journalism. Uh, four to five million people viewed it on the Rolling Stone site alone. and worldwide 362 million social media impressions. So, that, so it was kind of the definition of going viral. And then since then I've been doing four to five interviews a day, which have also allowed me to sort of um, speak uh, of this new book of mine, Magdalena River of Dreams. And so the two writing projects kind of emerged uh, into one. Um, but, but the, 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 the time alone is what allowed me to sort of have those reflections. I think there was a period of about two weeks where I think it was actually illegal not to share your piece on Facebook. I don't, I don't think there was a single <laughs> Facebook feed that was not commenting on your, on your Well, it hit a nerve. And I mean, you know, I mean, the, 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 um, um, the, the, the piece had a, you know, two reactions. It, it provoked, it was called the unraveling of America. And, and, and a lot of people thought that it was me as a Canadian being critical of the United States. Um, and, and missing from that was the fact that, yes, I was born Canadian, but I chose to become an American. My career was made in the United States. It could never have been made in Canada in a thousand years. All my education was in the States. I married an American woman. Um, my children were raised in both countries, dual citizens. My father-in-law was nearly U.S. president. Uh, he turned it down when Nixon offered it to him in 1968. My brother-in-law was a U.S. senator. Uh, my son-in-law is an active um, serviceman serving overseas as an officer in the, in the U.S. Navy at the moment. So I have this great affection for America. But when you, I think of that piece more as a love letter. You know, when you when you have a a family member in trouble in a family, you, you, the first step uh, on the roadmap of rehabilitation is to hold the mirror to their face to show them just how far they have fallen. And that was sort of the, the intention in, 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 in writing that piece. Look, you know, pandemics and epidemics have, have always had an impact, but a mixed impact on human history. I mean, famously, the Black Death in the 14th century by killing half of Europe's population transformed the economics of labor, uh, leading to the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, which brought down the medieval structure that had been in place for a thousand years. Uh, the Spanish influenza in the immediate wake of World War I uh, killed millions of people, millions more than will die of COVID, including my own grandfather who walked out from his home in Calgary and was dead by that afternoon. But Spanish flu didn't have the same historical impact in part because it occurred in the immediate wake of the Great War and people were simply numb by death. 
And by the same token, in the summer of Woodstock, 1969, a very pernicious Hong Kong flu killed 100,000 people, even as kids were swimming around in the mud of that farmer's field in upstate New York. Um, in Berlin that summer, they were storing corpses in subway stations because the morgues were full. But again, at that time, we didn't have global communication with the internet. And similarly, we didn't travel. I mean, we forget that in the late 1960s, the vast majority, not only of the world's population, but of the North American population had never been in an airplane. But the difference with this COVID-19 is that it came along and Americans suddenly woke up to the realization that with 2,000 people dying a day, with an American dying every minute of every hour of every day, uh, they were living in a failed state, led by a dysfunctional government at the head of which was an individual who was advocating the use of bathroom disinfectants to treat a disease that intellectually he could not begin to understand. And in a sense, as American frontline workers, remember that America is a country that, that, that won the war against polio and smallpox, that has led the way on medical intervention. Um, you, you know, suddenly the frontline workers found themselves standing er eagerly awaiting emergency um, shipments of fundamental goods such as swabs and masks from China. Uh, when that happened, uh, the hinge of history opened to the Asian century. You know, every uh, empire uh, fails to anticipate its demise. Every kingdom is born to die. Uh, the 15th century was dominated by the Portuguese, the 16th by the Spanish, the 17th by the Dutch, the 18th by the French, the 19th by the British. The British Empire amazingly reached its greatest geographical extent as late as 1935. I mean, there were Brits all around the world with a map of, map of the world painted red who were swirling their gin and tonics in 1935, unaware that the floor had fallen out from beneath them and that the empire had died in the mud of Flanders, and the empire had in fact emerged from the Great War, both bled white and bankrupt. And the torch of history had clearly passed to the Americans. And so, you know, we, we don't tend to see uh, the world that we've become, and that's what this article was trying to do in holding a mirror to the America, not of our fantasies, but of its reality today. Now, two things I wanna hit, uh, because I find them fascinating. First, how is Jan Wenner, an old friend, uh, I mean, the, the legendary editor, creator of Rolling Stone, and also, can you tell me about your father-in-law being offered the chance to be Richard Nixon's vice president, which would have obviously changed the world? My, my father-in-law was one of those incredible Americans. You know, he, 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 he epitomized an era when America was truly great. I mean, he was a, from a poor, uh, Mississippi family that moved to Chicago. His father lost his job in the depression, um, bank teller. He marched into the office of a Sunday school teacher who happened to be the CEO of Bell and Howell company that made all the cameras for Hollywood. And my father-in-law as a little tyke of 11 or 12 said to the CEO, it wasn't right, it wasn't fair. My dad shouldn't have lost his job. He works hard. This is America. It's not right. I want you to give my father a job. And that CEO looked at this little kid and said, son, I'll give your dad a job on one condition. You take a job. And so my father-in-law started working for Bell and Howell as a teenager. By 21, he was on the board. And by 29, he was CEO. 
and he had a deferment during World War II because they made the Norton bomb site for the B-17s and the B-24s. And, um, but he insisted that he'd serve. So he became a gunnery officer and they kept him on full salary on the condition that he um, write letters home as to where America should go after the war. And after the war, his two best friends were Bob Galvin. They went to Nutrier High School together. Bob Galvin, who created Motorola, and uh, Jim Watson, whose father created IBM. And Chuck was running Bell and Howell Company. And Eisenhower plucked him out of the corporate world. And eventually he ran for the Senate um, in the seat that eventually Barack Obama would hold uh, in Illinois. And he was in the Senate for uh, three or four terms, Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman, first Republican to come out against the Vietnam War, total supporter of civil rights. The individual who incidentally um, got John Lennon his green card, um, and also the individual who, who when Watergate happened, as a liberal Republican, he called up the most conservative Republican, Barry Goldwater, and they got an appointment to see Nixon in the White House, and they walked over, and Nixon met them in the Lincoln bedroom, and my father-in-law said to Nixon, who had in 1968 offered him the vice presidency, but he turned it down um, because he was supported Rockefeller in that campaign. Uh, and he said, all you got to do is tell the truth, sir. Uh, the country's on fire. We're in Vietnam. It was a stupid burglary. You, you didn't know anything about it. Just a mistake. Just Even if you knew about it, just tell the truth. You've just won the biggest election uh, plurality in the history of America, practically. Just come clean. And then Nixon turned to them and said, fellas, I'd love to do that, but I'd have to lie to the American people because I didn't know anything about Watergate. And that's why Barry Goldwater never went to Nixon's funeral. He said, that son of a bitch lied to me when we tried to save his skin, save the country. And then the interesting part of the story is that my father-in-law cut the deal with Jerry Ford, where Ford became vice president on the condition that you don't run in 76, because in US politics, you don't run when you, when you uh, want to, but when it's your turn. And 76 was my father-in-law's turn for the Republican Party. And uh, after Agnew, unexpect, uh, after um, rather Nixon unexpectedly has to resign, uh, Ford constitutionally becomes the president. And six months later, my father-in-law went over and saw him and said, Jerry, what about that deal we had? And President Ford said, Chuck, I kind of like this job. And that was that. Um, you know, and he went on to have a great illustrious career, but he represented a certain kind of American. And that brings us back to the, the story in a way of, of, of COVID. You know, COVID uh, reminds us of a number of things. First of all, we're living biological beings on a biological planet. The most, you know, our lives were brought to a standstill by a parasite uh, 10,000 times smaller than a grain of salt that commandeered the mechanisms of reproduction of our cells, uh, forcing us to create it, not us. At the same time, it attacked the, the, the web of connectivity uh, and community that is for the human as a social species, what claws and teeth represent to the tiger. Uh, it's disrupted the way we live and probably certain changes will be permanent. It's hard to believe that people will commute as they once did to work. Will we really go into dark spaces to have the doors slammed to sit shoulder to shoulder by hacking and wheezing people either at a rock concert or in a movie theater? You know, uh, th there'll be a number of these sorts of changes, but people are always changing. We'll adapt. I mean, the fluidity of memory and our capacity to forget is the most haunting trait of 
our species. That's how we're able to adapt to almost any degree of environmental or even moral degradation. But, but, but the key thing that COVID revealed to us was the illusion of American exceptionalism, which was reduced to tatters by, by, by the events that unfolded in the last spring. And I, I, I think it's worth remembering what America once was. On the eve of World War II, with Europe already aflame in 1940, uh, America was a demilitarized society. Um, uh, Bulgaria and Portugal had bigger armies. And yet within three years, we had 18 million men and women in uniform. Uh, industrial might of America, together with Russian blood, not only won World War II, it literally saved civilization from a descent into a level of darkness that we cannot even imagine. And it did so with incredible energy. The, 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 the Ford Motor Company in World War II produced more industrial output than the country of Italy. The Chrysler uh, Detroit Arsenal, uh, one factory, made more tanks than the German Third Reich. Uh, Henry Ford was told you couldn't build a B-24 with 1.5 million parts in an assembly line. He built Willow Run and was popping them out two, uh, one to every, for every two hours. Liberty ships were built by the hour. The, 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 the fastest from start to finish was to build an entire Liberty ship was four days, 29 hours, and 17 minutes. For every five pounds of equipment, the Japanese Empire of the Sun per capita got to a frontline troop in the Pacific War. Guess how much, Mark, America got? No idea. Give it, well, think about it for a second. For every five pounds, the Japanese Empire of the Sun managed to get to a frontline troop that was food, bullets, bandages, fuel, uniforms, everything. Per capita, how much did it have? 20? You, th you think 20 pounds. I'm it's got to be something big because of what you're saying. But well, keep going up. Whoa, uh, 40? Uh, keep going up. 60. Go up. 100? Way up. 200? Two tons. For every five okay, we pounds. We could have played that game for a while because I never would have gone that high. I know. But the point is this, this was the incredible capacity of America. Now, in the wake of the war, a couple of things happen. Uh, having gone into the war demilitarized, we never stood down. To this day, we have 150 troops in 150 countries. Um, since 1970, China's never been at war. America's never been at peace. Uh, we've spent $6 trillion on military adventures. China's built the infrastructure of home, pouring more cement every three years than America poured in the 20th century. Meanwhile, in the wake of the war, the American economic dominance was total. 4% of the world's population generated half the world's economy and built 90% of the world's automobiles. Now that affluence allowed critically for a truce between capital and labor that gave us a weekend. The famous Treaty of Detroit between the UAW and Walter and, and, and the big three automobile manufacturers. And in that era, uh, a, a man with limited education could take a factory job, support a family, support a wife, put his kids through good schools that were good in part because of the subservience of women. Remember that in that era, women had three options, clerical, secretarial, 
nursing um, or, or, or school teaching. So those of us like myself, old enough to have gone to elementary school in the 1950s, were taught by these brilliant women who today would be running corporations, serving on the bench, doing neurosurgery, right? And, but the bottom line is, is that a working man could support a family, buy a house, and look forward to a good and better future for his children. But then for two generations, we celebrated globalization with iconic intensity, uh, even as every working man and woman could recognize that it was nothing more or less than, than capital gussed up on the prowl in search of cheap forces, sources of labor. And suddenly what had been, you know, the 1950s were no uh, 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 golden era it may have been a golden era for capitalism, but not for people. If you were a woman, if you were a person of color, if you were gay. But economically, the country resembled Denmark more than it does the America of today. Marginal tax rates in the 1950s were 91%. Now, that didn't mean that all the wealthy paid that kind of money, uh, but it was a signal, a, a, a message that everybody does pay their bit. Uh, my father-in-law, as CEO of Bell and Howell Company would have had a salary 20 times that, no more than his uh, top white collared uh, 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 staff uh, members. Today, that discrepancy between a CEO and, and his, his, middle, his middle class workers would be more like 400 times. And one of, the, one of the things that I should say has come out of this, this sort of COVID period uh, people said, you know, the Irish Times put it perfectly. They said, you know, uh, uh, um, there've been a lot of emotions expressed about America over the years, good, bad, loving, hateful, whatever, but no one's ever felt pity before. But COVID's caused Americans to be pitied by the world. You know, as 2,000 people were, were dying, people woke up to a world where their government had lost control. And already they were feeling a loss of control in their lives, in part because of this extraordinary and almost obscene chasm that has existed now in the last two generations between those who have and those who have little. Um, the, the top 1% of Americans control $30 trillion of assets, but the bottom half have more debt than assets. The three richest Americans have more personal wealth than the uh, poorest 160 million put together. You know, a country that once produced fighter planes by the hour couldn't manage to get together the most basic of, 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 uh, of materials, swabs and masks for our frontline workers. Um, a, a, a country that once, you know, led the world in medical innovation was suddenly uh, leading the world in morbidity and mortality uh, by orders of magnitude. A country that once welcomed the huddled masses of the world um, as part of the kind of the essential aspects of the American myth. And remember that myth doesn't mean old story. Myths are moral charters by which a people live. Uh, suddenly we were turning away desperate mothers and their children at the Mexican border, uh, women and children who had fled political disruptions caused by American interventions in the crusade of Reagan's against communist 
uh, aggression in Central America, Nicaragua and, and, and Guatemala in the 1980s, mothers and children arriving at our borders because their societies have been torn apart by a, a drug industry that is only made possible by our consumption of cocaine in bars and boardrooms across the country. I would go as far as to say those who want to build a wall on the southern frontier are not only being silly in terms of wasting money and the fantasy that a wall will keep out desperate people seeking a better way of life, but I would argue that the advocates of a wall are in fact committing treason. Because what after all is treason? It's not simply trading secrets to military secrets to your enemy. Treason is also acts that betray the very essence of your own country, the very values upon which your country was founded. And, 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 and that is what that wall represents. You know, America was founded on the free flow of information. The founding fathers, whether it was Franklin or Monroe or Madison or Jefferson, always said that a free press and education was more important than the Congress, because without the free press and without education, um, the, 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 the Congress cannot function in any kind of democratic way. And yet now today, America ranks 45th globally in terms of press freedom. Education, I could name you 15 American cities from LA to Boston, from Atlanta to Seattle, who do not graduate more than 50% of their senior classes in public schools, public schools that are funded by local property taxes that invariably favor the children of the affluent as opposed to the children of America. And personal freedom in the United States has become licensed to have a personal arsenal of weaponry that trumps even the safety of children. And so in the wake of World War II, there was this moment of incredible affluence but it also was a time when we embraced the cult of the individual with almost manic obsession. And it gave us great individual freedom and mobility, but it also challenged the constraints of culture and community. So that by the 1960s, uh, half or more of American marriages were ending in divorce. Only 6% of American homes had grandparents and grandchildren beneath the same roof. Uh, we shunted off our elders into retirement homes, and we embraced the obsession with work with slogans like 24-7, implying total dedication of the workplace at the expense of family. And then we wonder why the average American youth by 18 has spent three full years watching the glass screen of a video monitor contributing to an obesity epidemic so severe it's, it's, it's considered a national emergency crisis. Uh, by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, these, the obesity one sees in America, look at any uh, athletic event in the 1940s, Yankee Stadium, you'll be hard pressed to find anyone who is overweight. Today, look at a crowd at a football game in America, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who isn't overweight, if not morbidly, morbidly obese. And again, this is not because people are stupid or ignorant at, at all. It's because the economic inequities in America are such that a mother of four kids cannot feed her children at Safeway as she'd like to. And at least with McDonald's, she can make sure that they go to bed not crying of hunger with their bellies full of starch, but at least the bellies are full. And so you, you see, um, uh, 
a, a kind of um, a, a, across the board in America, the loss of a sense of community to the point where Americans don't even really believe in the notion of society. You know, everybody has to fight for everything. Nobody deserves anything. Universal health care is seen as if some kind of socialist plot. And, and it's almost like the country's lost a sense of benign purpose um, that it once had. And so when we look at COVID, it, it simply reveals what has been lost. You know, in the same way that Donald Trump didn't cause any of this, he's a symptom of the decline. You know, when you look at Americans who, who deny the science, who, who deliberately ignore the advice of the uh, medical authorities, who without masks go to beaches and conventions and bars, they think they're flaunting their strength and their freedom. They're actually showing the weakness of a people that lack the stoicism to endure the pandemic or the fortitude to defeat it. And if you really want to know the, the, the image of, of American decline at the deepest level, uh, what, you know, if we remember when, you know, Oscar Wilde famously quipped that America was the only country to go from barbarism to decadence without passing through civilization, that may seem like a cruel comment, but it's consistent in a way with what has become of America. You know, when in 2016, the most haunting thing about that election is not the fact that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million votes and still lost in the Electoral co College, which itself is a horrible thing to think about. And, and it's not the fact that 62 million people necessarily voted for the Republican Party. And it's not as if those people were a monolith. And it's certainly not the case that they were stupid or ignorant. On the contrary, the truth is even more haunting. In 2016, fully 62 million Americans decided to vote their indignation, their, their, their um, irritation. You know, we all vote for people we like more than we vote for people we don't like. But we generally, to be proper citizens, we have to pay some uh, heed to issues of policy if I thought you were the nicest guy in the world, Mark, and I knew you planned to cut down every stick of old growth in British Columbia, I wouldn't vote for you, even if I disliked your opponent, as long as that opponent called for the protection of some of the ancient forest heritage of the province. You know, it's one thing to favor politicians by their personality. It's quite another to turn to an individual that you know bloody well is utterly ill-equipped for the job, whose only credential to serve in that job is his clear willingness to validate your hatreds, um, validate your indignation, validate your grievances, and target your enemies, real and imagined. And when, when you abandon the obligation of democracy, which is the thoughtful um, anticipation of how the person you vote for will serve not your needs, but the needs of the country, and the needs of the civilization of, of which we're a part, that is true decadence. And that's what the election of Donald Trump um, came to represent. So how does this show up in COVID? Well, let's just go to July 30th uh, of this summer, the day that the Americans announced the uh, 59,629 new cases of COVID. 
Now, on that very day, Mark, uh, in British Columbia, which is dominated by a metropolitan core city, Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, two hours north of Seattle, where the pandemic landed in America, we're an Asian city, <clears throat> which until the pandemic had dozens of flights coming in from China and Asia every day. Logically, we should have been very hard hit, but on the very day that the Americans announced 60,000 cases, we had in all of our hospitals of British Columbia, no more than five cases of COVID. So what had happened here? Well, first of all, Canadians in general, we're no perfect place, but we do have faith in our institutions. We haven't been told for two generations that Ottawa is the enemy. I mean, that is a psychotic act of the Americans, beginning with Ronald Reagan, to define the federal government as a core problem, as the enemy of the people, when Congress, by definition, is a chapel of the nation, or that's how the founding fathers saw it to be. And in Canada, again, we don't measure wealth as the currency accumulated by the lucky few, but rather by the strength of social relations between people and the bonds of reciprocity that link us all in common purpose. And that is the key to social democracy. Social democracy is not socialism. It's not communism light. Uh, it, it's simply dynamic capitalist economy that focuses on all tiers of the society. Now, I, in, in that Rolling Stone piece, I tried to explain this uh, in a way that would make sense, perhaps, to my American friends. And, uh, and I often cite this sort of allegory to try to distinguish between a social democracy like Canada and, and uh, uh, the United States as it exists today, uh, a nation that, in a way, developed social democracy was called the New Deal, but it swung so far the other way. You know, this is the thing about America. I mean, America was the land of Walt Whitman and the Grateful Dead and, and, uh, and Abraham Lincoln. You know, the first American president couldn't tell a lie. The current president cannot recognize the truth. If Lincoln called for charity for all and malice toward none, this dark troll of a buffoon uh, advocates malice towards all and charity for none. But in Canada, you're going to the Safeway grocery store. And in the States, you go to the Safeway grocery store. And in the States, there's a kind of a social, economic, uh, racial, educational chasm between you and the checkout person that is pretty much unbridgeable. And in Canada, you don't feel that. Not that you necessarily feel a peer of the checkout clerk. Uh, and you may have more or less or less money than they do, or more or less education than they do, but you do feel part of a common unit. And the reason for that is very simple. It's because you know that they know that you know that they're getting a living wage because of the unions. And secondly, you know that your kids probably go to the same school as their kids. Again, schools that are not funded by uh, property taxes that favor the affluent, but rather by state grants that give equitably on a per capita basis to every kid in our society because every kid deserves the same dream of social and economic advancement through education. And thirdly, and most essentially, they know that you know that they know that if their kids get sick, they get not only the same medical care that you get, but that the prime minister's kids get. And that's really true. 
And those three strands woven together become the fabric of Canadian social democracy. What Americans don't understand about healthcare is that it's got nothing to do with medicine. Healthcare is all about solidarity and trust and sending a message to every citizen that they matter, that they count, that their child is as important as the next guy's child. And, and let me just illustrate this, and I'm sorry I've gone on like this, but it's the end of the day and it, 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 it does get me so passionate, you know. Um, let me share a personal story, Mark, that I think illustrates this. When my mother was 85 years old, uh, living alone in Victoria, she got a headache at 11 o'clock in the morning. By two o'clock in the afternoon, she was being prepped for neurosurgery. And by three o'clock, a neurosurgeon, a brilliant Indo-Canadian um, um, uh, neurosurgeon uh, had saved my mother's life. And my sister and I, by that point, were in the intensive care unit where my mother was recovering. Now, right next to us was a young girl in bed who was surrounded by her Mennonite family from Manitoba. She'd been medevaced to Victoria. And that same doctor, that same day, had treated the same affliction in that little girl and also saved her life. Now, it was such a beautiful moment because I knew that my sister and I could have paid for that service. My sister's a prominent lawyer and I've done well. We also knew that that Mennonite family could well have uh, faced a choice between uh, the life of their child and the economic viability of their families, a farm family from the uh, fields of Manitoba. In Canada, we say that that's not a choice that any family should ever have to make in a civilized society. Now, I don't know if you're, old enough to remember, Mark, but the Empress Hotel used to have a policy that any Canadian uh, who had a family member in an intensive care unit at any hospital in Victoria got a free room for the night. Wow. So after the nurses poured us out, the wonderful Filipino and, and Irish and Scottish nurses in the, in the general hospital there in Victoria poured us out of the ICU and our loved ones went to sleep. We all poured back down in our cars to the Empress Hotel, and we went to the old Bengal Lounge. Remember, there's the old great bar in the old yep. Empress Hotel. I live in Victoria, and there's, there was much controversy when they yeah. sort of closed out the Bengal. But the thing is that the Mennonites don't drink. So my sister and I bought them orange juice and tea and, and apple juice, and maybe my sister Karen had a, a glass of red wine, maybe I had a beer, and then we did a toast. And we didn't toast our loved ones, happy as we were that they had survived. And we didn't even toast the neurosurgeon, grateful as we all were that his genius had saved the life of our loved ones. But we toasted our country because it was only our country that made possible that moment where two families from utterly different uh, ends of the economic, social, educational, geographical spectrum in Canada found themselves together in common purpose, grateful for that moment and grateful to be members of a country that allowed that union to happen. And to me, that night was the most perfectly patriotic experience that I've had in my long life as a Canadian. You know, we don't do patriotism too well. Uh, you know, you can't imagine a Canadian wrapping themselves in the flag. We didn't even have one until 1965. And then the country came to a standstill as we argued over one or three maple leaves. You know, the most perfect expression of our muted patriotism is a line of a verse from Jules Vigneault who said, my country is not a country, it's the winter. You know, but, but there was a, 
a moment there that made me and I think everybody in that bar, in our party, uh, extraordinarily proud to be Canadian. And again, this isn't to say we're perfect. We have enormous problems ourselves. Um, but in terms of how we reacted to the COVID crisis and are reacting to the COVID crisis, it speaks a great deal about the integrity and the commitment to the collective good that is the essence of Canadian uh, consilience, cooperation, and kindness. Thanks again for checking out Scanna during the Corona Apocalypse. Scan is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. If you like what we're up to and want to help us share more stories about orcas, oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join Scanna's pod at patreon.com. Sponsors for this episode include Darren Laren Young, Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, Simon McNair, Joan Watterson, Solomon Siegel, and Yosef Wask. And if you like what we're up to, please subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter. Check out our show notes at Scanna.org and our Scanna magazine on Medium. Rate us on iTunes. The more stars, the merrier. Follow us on social media. Share the show with your friends. Please share this episode with everyone. Scan is produced by the always awesome Rain Benu, associate producer and audio engineer, Isabella Almashi. Thanks to our web wizard, Katie Brown. And we've had all sorts of help lately behind the scenes from Liz Slick-Bellis, Maeve Milligan, Chantelle Heward, and Brian Murphy. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Now, we thought we'd end up this episode about the American Empire with a dreamy American song by a dreamy Canadian. This is Diana Krall with Autumn in New York.
often mingle with pain Dreamers with empty hands May sigh for exotic lands It's It's good to live it again Oh.